As you're, as you're doing that, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 3. We'll be back in Acts chapter 3 this morning. I want to thank Jeff for covering for me last Sunday. I appreciate that. I, um, I had a, a, a surgery on my nose to, to fix a deviated septum and a, and a few things like that. So, um, so I, I just warn you, I, I'm, you know, I think I'm going to get through this fine, but if at some point I have to, you know, Dab my nose. Just please forgive me uh, for that. I'm, I'm still dealing with the after effects. It'll be a few weeks before that's all healed up, they said. But I, I think I'm good to go today. And just, um, you know, speaking of, of, of surgeries, I know, man, we have a number of folks. Just, uh, I just want you guys remembering and praying. You know, Doug Burkhart had surgery on his back last week. And I think he's struggling with a little bit of the rehab and, and, and that sort of thing. I know Rick Cole has a surgery coming up, maybe even this week, and Dave Anthony, and, and so um, um, next week, and so, and I'm sure there are others. Um, those are just the ones off the top of my head. So let's, let's be sure and be praying for, for those and, and, and others in our body um, that need it at this time. But today we're going we're gonna to finish out Acts chapter 3. We've looked at this chapter, chapter a couple of times already, and we've learned about the healing of the lame man at the beautiful gate of the temple uh, there in Jerusalem, and what a, a powerful and very important miracle that was in history. We'll talk even a little bit more about that today. But God used Peter and John to once and for all show the nation of Israel that they had indeed killed their Messiah. And, and they get to see it on display. Now Jesus' Jesus' apostles were performing the same miracles that Jesus performed during his earthly ministry. And and that should have been a sign to them. That was God's sign to them that, that, that there should be no more confusion about who Jesus was, about his resurrection, and all of it. And Peter took the opportunity of this miracle and, and all those who witnessed it to preach his second recorded sermon in the book of Acts. We went through and looked at the, his first one in Acts chapter 2. And here's his second one in the very next chapter, in Acts chapter 3. And, 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 and they're, they're different messages, of course, but Peter is still preaching the same message. And, and part of that message, the focus of that me- message is a, is a renewed opportunity for Israel. That in God's grace and because of God's long-suffering and that he is long-suffering, he is giving the nation of Israel another chance to accept him. Even though they had killed and rejected Jesus, God's giving them another chance to see it correctly and to come back to him, to get it right as a nation. And Peter tells them that very honestly. He didn't hold back. He didn't sugarcoat anything. He outlined their guilt very straightforward in that. And we talked about that last time. But he also didn't leave them at their guilt. He took them to and laid out for them God's grace. So they were guilty But God is gracious. And so he showed them what all that meant for them now after crucifying Jesus. And so he told them exactly what they needed to do to respond to God properly. And that's the direction that we're going um, in this message this morning. Because Peter lays out the truth for them. But they, both individually and then collectively as a nation, now must decide what they are going to do with the truth. And isn't that always the case? I mean, isn't that kind of our life? It seems like God has set up this life in a way where we are consistently in a position of having to respond to him and his truth. And God is very interested in our approach to that continued endeavor of responding to his truth. It's part of what we talked about last time. Do we approach it humbly or or do we think that we're special? And so that, you know, not all of God's words apply to us. Do we approach it honestly or do we approach it in deception? Or let me just ask this question. How do you think the very truth of God's words apply to you? You see, I'm afraid that all of us, myself included, that we all at some level think that the truth of God's words can be selectively applied. So I believe we need to examine ourselves that way this morning. And in that vein, I've titled this message, Can You Handle the Truth? And that's a, that's a playoff um, the movie, A Few Good Men, right? You guys, you guys remember the movie, A Few Good Men? Yeah? 
All right, you can talk to me. It's okay. It's okay. But that includes, in my opinion, one of the best scenes in cinematic history, where Tom Cruise's character, he's a naval attorney, he was questioning Jack Nicholson's character, he was a Marine colonel, on whether Jack Nicholson, where Colonel Nathan Jessup, had given an order to other officers that led to the death of one of their men. And so they're on trial, and he's questioning them. And, and I know you love it so much, I, I want to show you a short clip of it. So you guys, we got this? You don't have to answer the question. I'll answer the question. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. Son, we live in a world that has walls, and those walls have to be guarded by men with guns. Who's going to do it? You? You, Lieutenant Weinberg? I have a greater responsibility than you could possibly fathom. You weep for Santiago and you curse the Marines. You have that luxury. You have the luxury of not knowing what I know. That Santiago's death, while tragic, probably saved lives. And my existence, while grotesque and incomprehensible to you, saves lives. You don't know the truth because deep down in places you don't talk about the parties. You want me on that. You need me on that wall. We use words like honor, code, loyalty. We use these words as the backbone of a life spent defending something. You use them as a punchline. I have neither the time nor the inclination to explain myself to a man who rises and sleeps under the blanket of the very freedom that I provide and then questions the manner in which I provide it. I mean, it's a good, it's a good, it's a good clip. And many of you have seen that before, and it's, it's, it's powerful, and that whole, that whole scene, we could have went beyond that. We'd have to do some editing if we did, but, um, <laughs> but the, whole, the whole scene uh, is, is, is powerful because the, the fact is both men are right. So Tom Cruise is doing his job, and, he, and, and he's right to question him, and, and, and what Jack Nicholson said was right. And here's how... Colonel Nathan Jessup was right in that scenario. Sometimes the truth is inconvenient. And sometimes the truth is hard to swallow. And it's harsh. But when it comes to God's truth, which according to John 17, 17 is God's word, even if it is inconvenient, it is non-negotiable. And we always need to ask ourselves, what are we going to do with it? When we're confronted with God's truth, what is it that we are going to do with it? Because we all get it. We all get truth. Certainly those of us who are members of this church, we receive truth. But the question is, can we handle it? And handle it in such a way that we accept it for what it is and live our lives accordingly? Or do we struggle with it? Are we unable to really handle it? So instead, we ignore it, or we don't live it, but we justify ourselves, or we use human logic to explain it away and why that doesn't really apply to us today, or we just generally act like for some reason, it doesn't matter, any other reason, that it doesn't apply to us. It doesn't apply to me. I mean, surely I don't have to do what the Bible says there. I mean, that would be a, that'd be a bit extreme, wouldn't it? And it just comes down to how we view God's Word and what we love in our life. And whether we love the world or whether we love His Word or whether we love Him or whether we love ourselves, and it comes down to what we love, it comes down to what we prioritize and all of that. And listen, there are, there are, plenty, there are plenty of people who claim to love God's Word. There are plenty, plenty of people who claim to love the truth. But I put this on your outline sheet. I don't think God cares what we claim. I think he cares what we live. I don't think he cares what we claim. I think he cares what we live because what we live reveals our heart. It reveals what we actually believe. It reveals what we prioritize. God talked about this very thing with the nation of Israel in Isaiah chapter 29 and verse 13. He says, Wherefore the Lord said, For as much as this people draw near me with their mouth and with their lips do honor me, but have removed their heart far from me. And their fear toward me is taught 
by the precept of men. That's a powerful verse. How often does that describe us? Listen, I, I want you to listen to this next verse. It's even more powerful. It's Ezekiel chapter 33, verses 30 and 31. It says, Also thou son of man, the children of thy people, still are talking against thee by the walls and in the doors of the houses, and speak one to another, every one to his brother, saying, Come, I pray you, and hear what is the word that cometh from the Lord. And listen to verse 31. And they come unto thee as the people cometh, and they sit before thee. Like you guys are all sitting here today. And they sit before thee as my people. And they hear my words. But they will not do them. For with their mouth, they show much love. But their heart goeth after covetousness. Listen, that's some strong words. Those are sobering passages. So can you handle the truth? And I hope you can, because that's what I plan on showing you this morning as we examine Peter's sermon here at the end of chapter 3. So let's look at it together. We're going to go back. We've, we've been kind of all around this chapter. We're going to go back to verse 12, and then we're going to read down through the end of the chapter, verse 26. And we're going to learn some keys to responding to God, how to properly handle the truth that we are faced with all the time, even if it's inconvenient even if it goes against our humanistic thoughts and desires. So most of you already know the context. Peter and John, they heal a lame, a man who had been lame from birth. And they begin rejoicing together as you know, he gets up and he starts leaping and, and, and praising God. And a crowd gathers to witness what was occurring. And, and verse 10 says that everyone knew this lame man. He, he had been laid at the, at the gate every day. Asking alms, he was over 40 years old, so everybody knew who he was, knew that he couldn't walk. And now he's healed, and the people are astonished. In verse 11, it says they were greatly wondering what was going on. And it was at that time that Peter begins to speak. And, and, and he confronts everyone listening with the truth of God's word. So that's the context. In the beginning of verse 12, we read, And when people saw it, when he saw that they were wondering, <coughs> excuse me, when he saw their amazement, he answered unto the people, Ye men of Israel, why marvel ye at this? Or why look ye so earnestly on us as though by our own power or holiness we had made this man to walk? The God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, hath glorified his son Jesus, whom ye delivered up and denied him in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But ye denied the Holy One and the just and desired a murderer to be granted unto you and killed the Prince of Life, whom God hath raised from the dead, whereof we are witnesses." And his name, through faith in his name, hath made this man strong, whom ye see and know. Yea, the faith which is by him hath given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. And now, brethren, I wot that through ignorance ye did it, as did also your rulers. But those things which God before had showed by the mouth of all his prophets that Christ should suffer, he hath so fulfilled. Repent ye, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. He shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you, whom the, heaven, whom the heaven must receive until the times of restitution of all things, which God hath spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. For Moses truly said unto the fathers, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren like unto me. Him shall ye hear in all things whatsoever he shall say unto you. And it shall come to pass that every soul which will not hear that prophet shall be destroyed from among the people. And all the prophets from Samuel and those that follow after, as many as have spoken, have likewise foretold of these days. Ye are the children of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying unto Abraham, And in thy seed shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed. Unto you first God, having raised up his son Jesus, sent him to bless you, and turning away every one of you from his iniquities. All right, let's pray, and then let's ask the Lord to, to lead us this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much. Uh, for your word. Thank you for the time that we've had together this morning, worshiping you in song. And, and Lord, I pray that now that, that, that you uh, bring our attention to you um, and, and, and what you have to, to speak to us this morning. And, and, and Lord, I, I certainly pray that it is true to your word. I pray that's glorifying to you, that, that this entire service is a sweet savor to you, Lord, I pray that you use it in our lives, and, and again, I just pray that you get glory from it as your word is exalted, and I pray that you get glory from our lives as we live according to what your word says. 
Um, we love you and we thank you for it. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So as we've already seen with Peter in this book, and, and we see a little bit with him right now, you know, Peter's not lost his boldness, right? That was one thing that, that Peter's always had, even, even, in, his, even in some of his immaturity. And, and now we see his boldness. He doesn't shy away from the issues at hand. He's willing to tell the truth even when that truth is inconvenient and not what the people want to hear. But contained within the words that we just read from Peter, we get a great model on how we should respond to God. I, get, I think we learned some keys to properly handling God's truth in our life. If you want to respond to God correctly when faced with his truth, here, here's some things you need to understand. And here's the first key uh, to understand, and that is uh, information isn't enough. Point number one, information isn't enough. And here's what I mean by that. <clears throat> Knowing the truth is where we all must start. But just because you know the truth, just because you have the right information, that doesn't mean that you're going to have the right response. Those, those things aren't automatic. They don't automatically go together. So knowing the truth, the information of the truth isn't enough. And that's what Peter tells those listening to him at the, at the beginning of his sermon. Look at verses 13 through 15 again. Peter said, The God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob and the God of our fathers hath glorified his son Jesus. And, you know, there's a lot he's doing here. There's a, man, there's so much in this sermon that we just don't even have time really to get to. But, you know, he's connecting them back to their heritage and this, this message to Israel. And he says, you know, this was the fathers. And now God the Father, he's, what he's doing through this miracle is he, he glorified his son Jesus, whom ye delivered up. And denied him in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But ye denied the Holy One and the just and desired a murderer to be granted unto you and killed the Prince of Life, whom God hath raised from the dead, whereof we are witnesses. We're witnesses to that fact, to his resurrection. And you, by the way, you all are now too because you just saw this man being healed. And, and so Peter's doing a lot here. And we've talked about some of these verses, right? We went through verse 18 last time. So, so we'll move through this. But, but Peter says, listen, you killed Jesus, even though common sense and common knowledge told you that was foolish. And I say that because Peter used the word denied twice in these verses. They denied Christ. And denied means to contradict. It means you have a set of data, but you dispute it. You disagree with it or you lie about it. You can only deny someone when you have the information about them and you go against it. And isn't it very interesting that God chooses Peter to boldly deliver this message? The one disciple who had the most public and open denial of Christ of all. One recorded in Scripture for eternity in all four Gospels. So in one way, you know, maybe God has a wicked sense of irony. But in another way, in God's forgiveness and providence, Peter was the perfect man to deliver this message. Because he understood better than others. There was a time that Peter had all of the correct information, still made the wrong decision. He knew better than anyone that information isn't enough. And denial is still possible, maybe even likely, when it comes to Christ. That's what history would tell us. So the Jews denied Christ, and first of all, they denied Christ in the presence of Pilate, a man who wanted to let him go. He was determined to let Jesus go. <clears throat> That's what the Bible says. You see, Pilate had all the right info, too. He knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that this man was innocent. And he knew why they were persecuting him even. Mark chapter 15, verses 9 and 10 says, But Pilate answered them, saying, Will ye that I release unto you the king of the Jews? For he knew that the chief priest had delivered him for envy. He knew what they were doing. He had all the information he needed. He knew it was a sham trial. He knew everything on Jesus that, he, that, that they were saying wasn't true. He knew it so well, he tried to release Jesus three times. John 18, 38, Pilate saith unto them, what is truth? And when it was just a great question. And when he had said this, he went out again unto the Jews and saith unto them, I find no fault in him at all. Look down in chapter 19, verse 4, Pilate therefore went forth again 
and saith unto them, Behold, I bring him forth unto you, that ye may know that I find no fault in him. And then one more time, two verses later, verse 6, When the chief priests therefore and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto them, Take ye him and crucify him. You do it, for I find no fault in him. You see, Pilate knew. Pilate had the right information. But here's what he didn't have. Pilate didn't have the right character. He had the right information, he just didn't have the right character. Because even with all of the right information, he valued and he prioritized his worldly relationships over truth. He couldn't handle the truth. Because we see where this all broke down for him in John 19, 12, just a few verses after what we just read. It says that from henceforth Pilate sought to release him He's trying. He knows he's innocent. But the Jews cried out saying, If thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend. Whosoever maketh himself a king speaketh against Caesar. And boy, that is a powerful, powerful sentence right there. Because Caesar pictures this world. And at the time, he was essentially the king of the world. And he says, If you release Jesus... You're not Caesar's friend. And so Pilate had to choose. Which king was he going to be friends with? Because he couldn't have it both ways. And listen, neither can we. James 4.4 says, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Can, can you handle that truth? It's what the Bible says, right? And yet, many of us choose friendship with the world every day. And we have all of the necessary information. We have access to the truth, and yet, out there in front of the world, we deny Him all the time. Because we can't handle the truth. Our flesh is too strong. The pull is too hard. Do you feel it? Do you feel that pull? I think most of us do. It's the spiritual battle, the fight that we're in. So the Jews denied Jesus in the presence of Pilate, who had all the right information. And then Peter takes it up a notch because at the beginning of verse 14, he said, You denied the Holy One and the just. And those are very interesting and certainly not coincidental titles that Peter used in the context of their denial. He's leaving no doubt regarding the error of their ways, their their misuse of the right information. Because first of all, he said Jesus was the Holy One. Now that's a a title that Peter used in his first sermon in the book of Acts, in Acts 2.27. But this also gives us some doctrinal clues into what Peter's doing here, because that's a title found mostly throughout the Old Testament. Old Testament. It's a title, you find it 52 times in the Bible, 49 of those times it describes the Lord Jesus Christ in the Bible. 49, 7 times 7, it describes the Lord in the Bible. And in those mentions, what you will find is that most of them, nearly all of them, point to the Holy One as the Lord Jesus Christ, as the Savior of Israel. All right, he's, that's what the Holy One points to. The, Jesus is the Savior of Israel, as the King of a kingdom. So let me just give you, you can do this study on your own, but let me just show you a couple examples. Psalm 89, 18 says, For the Lord is our defense, and the Holy One of Israel is our King. Okay, that's Jesus. Isaiah 17, 7 says, At that day, which that day is a clue to the, that millennial day, that thousand-year day of reign of Christ, at that day shall a man look to his maker, who's, who's on the throne, and his eyes shall have respect to the Holy One of Israel. So I don't want you to forget the doctrinal context of this early portion of Acts that we've talked about before. Peter is preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Israel's getting another chance. Nowhere is Peter talking about the cross or the blood of Christ Not that it wasn't important to them. It absolutely was. But at this point, Peter is still pointing them to a king and a kingdom. And he's doing that even through the titles he's using. 
So he uses holy one. He also uses the title just. And we don't have the time to go through all of this, but I just want to show you one verse so you can again see what Peter's doing. Remember, Proverbs 3.5 says, Every word of God is pure. Every single one of them. So these words Peter uses are not accidental. They're not coincidental. They were inspired by the Holy Spirit and used for a reason. And when he gives Jesus the title just, he's hearkening them back to many things, but one of them is a prophecy about Jesus that they saw fulfilled with their own eyes. In Zechariah 9.9, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass, and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. Now that's an event that's recorded in the Gospels. Jesus entering Jerusalem in that final week before his crucifixion, you know, you might know it as the triumphal entry. He's entering Jerusalem as the king, you know, celebrated as Palm Sunday the week before Easter. So this was an event that happened historically. Those Jews that Peter was speaking to would have seen it personally or at least heard about it. And they also would have been aware of the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9. Where again, not coincidentally, he's called just. And, and also, just to see how awesome God is and how he dots all his I's and crosses all his T's. This full passage in, in Zechariah 9 has a second coming millennial kingdom context as well. There's a double fulfillment there. But you have to study that out on your own. Just look at Zechariah 9.10 and you'll see the, the second coming context of that. Because every word of God is pure. He didn't, he didn't miss a thing. But back to Peter's sermon, and specifically the hearers, even with all the right information, even with all the right knowledge, they still didn't make the right decision with God's word. They denied him. They denied the holy one, the just one, the king. So information isn't enough. You still must be able to make the right decision <coughs> with that information according to truth. So can you handle the truth? Or do you choose yourself? Do you choose your selfish desires over it, even with the information in hand? Even with the right information staring you right in the face. So know that knowledge isn't enough. But then second, you also need to know that ignorance isn't an excuse. Information isn't enough. But ignorance isn't an excuse. And this is an amazing one that we need to spend a little bit of time on. I need to set this up before we get to the meat of the point. You see, even with having all of the right information, with everything I just said, having all the right information, Peter still said they were ignorant. Look at verse 17. And now, brethren, I wot, that just means to know, I know that through ignorance ye did it, as did also your rulers. But those things which God before has showed by the mouth of all his prophets that Christ should suffer, he has so fulfilled. And listen, I believe that because it's what God's word says, but I don't fully understand it. I don't understand how they were considered ignorant other than just simply, it's only just by God's grace. It's just by God's grace. That's the only way I can make sense of it. The fact that God is long-suffering, and we talked about that last time. And I say that just because of everything we've already talked about in point one. In my flawed opinion, they had all the information they needed, especially the rulers. I mean, look at Matthew 26, verses 59 through 61. Now the chief priests and elders and all the council sought false, sought false witness against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Yea, though many false witnesses came, yet found they none. And at the last came two false witnesses and said, this fellow said, I'm able to destroy the temple and to build it in three days. And so then they question Jesus about this and they ask him, you know, are, are you the Christ? And they're like, oh, you, said, you say that I am. And then they take it from there. And then look at Matthew 28. After Jesus had, had risen from the dead, Jesus is alive. And look at what the elders did, verse 12. Matthew 28, 12. And when they were, were assembled, with the elders and had taken counsel. They're like, what in the world do we do now? They gave large money unto the soldiers, saying, say ye his disciples came by night and stole him away while he slept. So in my mind, I'm like, how are you ignorant 
that Jesus rose from the dead when you're bribing the guards to lie and say he didn't rise from the dead. Then no, no, his, his, his disciples came. They, they stole him. That's, that's what happened. That's really, that's really what happened. So they knew he was innocent. They knew he was going to rise from the dead. He, he said he was going to. They knew that he did rise from the dead. There are many other places we could go to give more examples. But listen, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. Because God still said they were ignorant. And that ends all debate. But I, I point all that out to you to once again emphasize just how gracious our God is. Even in the midst of everything we're talking about today, and, and, and by the way, we have a couple more hard words coming. But even in the midst of that, and, and, and look at ourselves in the mirror in that, man, we serve a gracious God who's long-suffering, and he's just wanting us to come back to him. That's all it is. It's amazing. And we should be so thankful for that. Because the fact that he called them ignorant was a really big deal. Because here's the thing. There was no sacrifice. So again, we're still in an Old Testament economy, right? And there was no sacrifice for premeditated murder under the law. That was punishable by death. But listen, and this is on your outline sheet. There were provisions for sins of ignorance. There were provisions for sins of ignorance, including murder or what we might call manslaughter today. And that is all laid out in Leviticus chapter 4. So, so I'm going to take you there for a second. Leviticus chapter 4, look at verse 2. Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, If a soul shall sin through ignorance against any of the commandments of the Lord concerning these things, which ought not to be done, and shall do against any of them. And then he just goes on from there, down, verses 3, down through the rest of the chapter, to explain the provisions to what to do to take care of those sins of ignorance. There were provisions. And listen, there was an application both at the individual level, right? So here you see that in verse 2. There's also an application for the nas at the national level. Look at verse 13. And if the whole congregation of Israel sin through ignorance, right? This is what we're talking at a national level. If the whole congregation of Israel sin through ignorance, and the thing be hid from the eyes of the assembly, and they have done somewhat against any of the commandments of the Lord concerning these things which should not be done and are guilty. Okay, so it's individual level, it's national level, it, it even specific for the rulers. Look at verse 22. When a ruler hath sinned, and done somewhat through ignorance against any of the commandments of the Lord his God concerning the things which should not be done and is guilty. And that's what Peter said to them. You guys, individually, collectively, and even your rulers, killed Jesus in ignorance. And those are important words because that means they could be restored. This is, how, this is God's way of giving them another chance. But here's the thing, and now I'm finally bringing this around to, to, to the focus of this point. Even though God was lowering the charge, so to speak, and he, he was doing that to again because it was a renewed opportunity, they were still guilty. Even though God was lowering the charge, they were still guilty. You see that all throughout Leviticus chapter 4. We read that specifically in, verse, in those last two verses we read, and are guilty. And are guilty. They're guilty to do it. And, and a sin of ignorance is still a sin. And all sins must be dealt with. Even for Israel in Acts chapter 3, ignorance was not an excuse. And according to Acts 3.18, it was tied to not knowing Scripture. Peter said everything the prophets spoke about, Jesus fulfilled. But you missed it. Because you didn't know his word like you should have. Paul says the exact same thing about this exact same group of Jews in Acts 13, 27. Listen to how he, how he described it. For they that dwell at Jerusalem and their rulers, because they knew him not, nor yet the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath day, they have fulfilled them in condemning him. They fulfilled the scriptures because they didn't know his word even though they read them every week, even though they showed up every Sunday. I mean, I know the Sabbath's not Sunday. I'm making a, you know, a point here. Even though they read them every single week, they missed it 
They didn't know it. They didn't know, hear the voices of those prophets. And that's why they didn't know Jesus. And they didn't know what they were reading. And listen, all throughout the Gospels, Jesus consistently confronted those religious leaders of the day on their ignorance of the Old Testament. So, for example, Matthew 12, verses 3 through 5, he said, but this is Jesus speaking, but he said unto them, Have you not read what David did when he was in hunger? And they that were with him, how he entered into the house of God and did eat the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, neither for them which were with him, but only for the priest? Or have ye not read in the law how that on the Sabbath days the priest in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? He's like, listen, what you're doing, didn't you not read? You should have read something about that. Matthew 21, 42, Jesus saith unto them, did you never read in the scriptures? The stone which the builder rejected, the same has become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Did you not read that? You should have caught that. They were ignorant of God's word. And we could be critical of them, and we could shake our heads at their stupidity, but listen, how much and how often does that same principle apply to you and me? Because you and I will not be able to use ignorance as an excuse before the Lord either. Ignorance is never an absolute excuse, is it? Even within our legal system, we're personally responsible to know, right? I mean, if you're going 45 miles an hour in a 25-mile-an-hour zone and you get pulled over by the police, is that police officer going to care that you didn't know that the speed limit was 45, even if you didn't? Is he going to care? Is she going to care? Probably not. And either way, you certainly are not able to claim ignorance as a defense. It's your responsibility to know. Because the ability is there. The laws are written. The laws are made available for everybody to read, everybody to learn, everybody to see them. You have a responsibility to know them. And we, above any group in history, are without excuse. We have a completed perfect Bible that is fully accessible to us today. So do you know what it says? Because you can. And even more than that, it's your responsibility to know. In 2 Timothy 2.15, the Bible commands you and me to study, to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Listen, the truth is, ignorance will not be a valid excuse at the judgment seat of Christ for believers, and it will not be a valid excuse at the great white throne judgment for non-believers. We can all know who God is, we can all know what he says, and therefore we need to accept him for who he is and live our life by his book and his rules. I mean, even, even, even nature cries that out, right? Romans 1.20, For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Every single one of us in this room this morning, we're without excuse. And that includes the excuse of ignorance. So let's learn his word so that we can live his word. Can you handle that? Can you handle the truth? Because that's ultimately what it all boils down to. You must do it for yourself. And that brings us to our last point, our, our last key to responding correctly to God when you're faced with his truth. And that is internalization is essential. Eternalization is essential. Because after addressing the issue of ignorance, Peter gives them the answer on, on what they're to do now. Look at verse 19. Peter says, repent ye therefore and be converted. It's an, it's an interesting word we'll talk about in a second. Repent ye therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. And he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive until the times of restitutions of all things. Listen, we're not going to have time to, to go through all this in, in great detail, but, but man, just, just read the words that are being said and, and you can really put together what he's saying here, right? He says that he's going to send Jesus Christ, which has been preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive, right? The ascension of Christ, he's going to be there until the restitution of all things. We'll talk about that in a second. 
which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. That's always been talked about all throughout the Old Testament. He spoke about the second coming and he spoke about the millennium. Let's skip down to verse 23. And it shall come to pass that every soul which will not hear that prophet shall be destroyed from among the people. And then he, and then he goes down from there and, and, and kind of finishes out this sermon. But the answer that, that Peter gives is repentance, right? It's repent and be converted. The answer includes conversion. And at, at this point, like I already mentioned, Peter's talking about this at a national level. That he's, he's talking about the national salvation of Israel, looking for Jesus to return and set up his kingdom. Even then, that's when Israel's sins will be blotted out, right? So he says, repent, repent ye therefore be converted that your sins may be blotted out. Verse 9, okay, well, when are Israel at a national level, when are their sins going to be blotted out? At his second coming and into his millennium. So Isaiah 44, verses 22 and 23 says, I have blotted out as a thick cloud thy transgressions and as a cloud thy sins. Return unto me, for I have redeemed thee. Sing, O ye heavens, for the Lord hath done it. Shall, O ye lower parts of the earth, break forth unto singing, ye mountains, O forest, and every tree therein. For the Lord hath redeemed Jacob and glorified himself in Israel. Right? That gives us the context. That's the second coming, and then that's the millennial reign of Christ. That is that day. And when their sins will be blotted out. And the second coming and the kingdom reign is when those times of refreshing and the times of restitution will occur. That time is described in some detail in Ezekiel 34, verses 20 through 22 through 26. Listen to how those times will be. Therefore will I save my flock, and they shall no more be a prey. And I will judge between cattle and cattle, and I will set up one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them, even my servant David. He shall feed them, he shall be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David, a prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken it, and I will make with them a covenant of peace, and will cause the evil beast to cease out of the land, and they shall dwell safely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. He's, he's talking about the millennium. And I will make them in the places round about my hill a blessing, and I will cause the shower to come down in his season, and there shall be showers of blessing. And those showers of blessing are refreshing and they provide restitution to the entire world. Isaiah 28, 12 says, To whom he said, This is the rest wherewith we may cause the weary to rest, and this is the refreshing, yet they would not hear. And he was talking about the kingdom reign of Christ, that, that reign is the millennium, and they wouldn't hear then, and it turns out they don't hear in Acts chapter 3 either at least not at a national level, but there were individuals that heard that message. When we get into chapter 4, we're going to learn that 5,000 believed. An even bigger response than, than Peter's sermon at Pentecost. That was only 3,000. So even though doctrinally this was a national call, there were individuals that internalized that message. And God is always seeking individuals, even in the midst of bigger plans. That's why I read verse 23 there that said, And it shall come to pass that every soul which will not hear that prophet shall be destroyed from among the people. See, there's an individual aspect too. You see, God's always looking for the right response to his truth. But if you don't accept the responsibility for yourself, if you don't internalize that truth, then it won't happen. You won't repent, and therefore you won't be converted. And again, from a doctrinal perspective, that harkens back to the ministry of John the Baptist. But we've already talked about that. We talked about that in Acts chapter 2. I want to make a practical application of this today. Because the, the real question on the table with respect to how you have been responding to God's word or, or res responding positively or negatively is do you need to repent and convert or turn back, revert, turn back to Christ? Have you gone astray? Have you chosen the world and denied the truth of God's word? Because if so, I want to use the speaker of this sermon, Peter, as an encouragement and a great example of that process. We already talked about how interesting it is that God used Peter to bring this message of denial 
to the Jews. Right? How, how he, he had denied Christ. And, and now he's the one that is, had, but he had repented and he had turned back to Christ. And how they needed to do the same thing. And again, Peter was the perfect man to bring that message because that was the story of Peter's life. Peter denied Christ three times. It was over. He couldn't handle the truth. And then Jesus was dead. And he didn't have time to make it right. But before his denial, Jesus made a very interesting statement to Peter. And it's found in Luke 22, verses 31 and 32. Jesus tells Peter that he's going to deny him. This is the context. He tells him, I'm going to deny him. And then look what he says in verse 31. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But look at verse 32. But I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. And that is very, very interesting. When thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. And of course, Jesus was right. Peter denied him. Peter walked away. Even after the resurrection, even after Peter had witnessed Jesus, after his resurrection, listen, he still struggled. He still couldn't put it all together. Because even after seeing the resurrected Jesus, Peter said, man, I don't know. I'm going fishing. Look at John 21, verses 1 through 3. And after these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And on this wise showed he himself. There were together Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathanael of Cana and Galilee and the sons of Zebedee and two other of his disciples. And look at Peter's response. Simon Peter saith unto them, I go a fishing. They say unto him, mm, we're going to go with you. We're not sure what's going on here. We also go with thee. They went forth and entered into the ship immediately and that night they caught nothing. And that might not be the exact response you would expect from Peter. After seeing a resurrected Jesus, he's like, you know what? I think I'm just going to go fishing. I don't know what to make of this. I've kind of chucked it already. I think I'm just going to go back to doing what I did before. And that, that's exactly what, what Jesus had called Peter away from, Right? was his fishing ways, to become a fisher of men. He called Peter away from that, and now Peter's going back to it. It's because Peter hadn't been converted yet. He was still in a state of denial. He hadn't turned back to Christ. But that turning back, that conversion happens a few verses later when Jesus confronts Peter directly. Look at verse 15. And so when they had dined, Jesus saith to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these, more than all of these people? And he saith unto them, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my lambs. You guys are familiar with this. It's very popular. Verse 16. He saith to him again the second time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my sheep. He saith unto him the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? And look, Peter was grieved because he said unto him the third time, Lovest thou me? I don't think God cares what we claim as much as he cares what we live. Peter was grieved because he said unto him the third time, Lovest thou me? And he said unto him, Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I love thee. And Jesus saith unto him, Feed my sheep. So listen, this, in this part, he, he, turned, he is converted and he turns back to Christ. And, it's, and he's brought back into the ministry. And don't miss it. Because the feeding of God's sheep, the feeding of God's lambs, is how Peter fulfilled Christ's prayer of Luke twenty-two thirty-two. He says, after you're converted, strengthen my brethren. And that's how he strengthened his brethren. By being the Peter that we see in Acts chapter 3. By leading the way. By not being willing to just stay in a state of denial. And the beautiful thing about the Lord is that Peter's story can be your story too. Peter's story can be your story too. Peter had walked away, but he came back. And there was a time that Peter couldn't handle the truth, but he changed his mind. And he took stock of himself and he internalized and took responsibility to do what's right according to God's word. 
And he turned around and he went back. And listen, it was even more dire for Peter. Because at this time, there was, the, the Holy Spirit, indwelling of the Holy Spirit, didn't come till Acts chapter 2. There was still no eternal security at this point with Peter. And that gets into more of the definition of converted. But we're just taking a more practical look at it than a doctrinal look. But it was dire for him. But listen, it's dire for us too. He went back. And listen, maybe that's exactly what you need to do too. And maybe there was a time that you were following the Lord. And you left your worldly fisherman ways and you became a fisher of men. But then it got difficult. So you went back. And you went back to the world. And you went back to feeding your flesh. And you went back to prioritizing temporal gain over eternal gain. Because you couldn't handle the truth. So you denied Christ. And the reality of your life is that you're still denying Christ. And you pretend like you don't. And you try to, try to play both sides. But the Bible says very clearly that you can't do that. If you're a friend of the world, you're an enemy of God. It says it throughout the Bible. You see it in the Old Testament, 1 Kings 18.21, and Elijah came unto all the people and said, How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people answered him not a word because they wanted to run both sides. You see it in the Gospels, no man, Matthew 6.24, no man can serve two masters. For either hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. You cannot serve God and mammon. You see it in the Pauline epistles, 1 Corinthians 10, verses 21 and 22. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. You cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and of the table of devils. Do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? And those are just a few of the many examples I could have used. So I'm just asking you today not to lie to yourself. You can't play both sides of the fence and you can't run the middle either. You're either for him or against him, but here is what you can do. You can change sides. You can change sides. Maybe you did it once. Why don't you do it again? That's what Peter did. He converted and reverted back to Christ. And you can do the same. All it takes is a decision. A decision to handle and respond to the truth of God's word properly. But having the information isn't enough. You must respond to it correctly. You must internalize it and see it for what it is, God's truth. And in turn, see yourself for who you are, not God. But you're God's creation. And since when does the creation get to dictate to the creator what the rules are? You don't get to do that. It just doesn't work that way. I'm sorry. But you can decide to do things his way today. You can respond to his truth the way he desires. So what are you waiting for?